everybody. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, I'm Matt Rojanski. I'm director of the Wilson Center's Canon Institute and very pleased uh, to welcome all of you and to welcome our three outstanding panelists uh, for a retrospective discussion of Russia's regional elections this past Sunday, September 13th. Um, before I get started, I'd like to remind everybody you can stay up to date on our upcoming events and publications via our website. And also uh, follow our two podcasts, Ken and X, and uh, our newest podcast, The Russia File, co-hosted by Max Trudelubov, who's joining us today. Uh, you can also find our latest analysis uh, on our blogs, The Russia File and Focus Ukraine. Um, I want to remind everybody at the outset, and I'll try to do so again, that if you have questions for our guests, you can submit them in real time, and I will see them uh, by email at kennan at wilsoncenter.org. Uh, you can tweet them to at Kennan Institute uh, or post them on the Kennan Institute Facebook page. If you include your name and affiliation with the question, it will simply make it more likely that your question gets asked. So please do that. Um, in order to make the most of the time that we have together, I'm just going to go right into the panel, but I think I will introduce each speaker before they speak. And we're going to begin with Nikolai Petrov. Uh, Nikolai is a former Kennan Institute regional exchange scholar in the early 1990s. Uh, he's currently a senior research fellow on the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House in London and a professor of the political science department at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. His current research at Chatham House involves deconstructing the decision-making process in Putin's Russia, which remains largely hidden from the public eye. And let me add personally that uh, Kolya and I were colleagues uh, when I was at the Carnegie Endowment and he was at the Carnegie Moscow Center and I learned just a tremendous amount about Russian domestic politics and uh, in particular about the Russian regions with Kolya and I still uh, harbor somewhere in my future goals to take that driving trip across Russia uh, all the way from uh, European Russia to the Far East or maybe the other direction uh, as Solzhenitsyn said he would like to do. I still want to do that and I want to do it with you Kolya. So, the floor is yours. Uh, okay, thank you so much for hearing me. And uh, I'd like to make just uh, a few uh, general uh, points uh, to start uh, our discussion. And uh, my first point is that uh, these elections used to be very different from uh, any previous ones, and it's not that easy to compare them due to many reasons. There was a pandemic, uh, there was economic crisis, uh, there was constitutional uh, reform and even Navalny's poisoning. So the general, uh, not, to, not to mention Khabarovsk protests and what uh, was and what is going on in Belarus. So the general socio-political background was very different from what it used to be in the past. Uh, if to evaluate election results, whether uh, they are success story for the Kremlin or not, uh, we should have in mind what exactly the Kremlin did want. And uh, it's understandable that, first of all, it was needed for the Kremlin to demonstrate its uh, control, even at a time of uh, very uneasy, uh, well, uh, socio-political uh, environment. Uh, and um, uh, there was a test for the new uh, way of voting, which uh, at first has been tried during the voting uh, for the constitutional amendments. Uh, it was stamp voting, 
which led authorities not uh, to avoid uh, any kind of uh, serious uh, observation at the time of elections. Uh, these elections used to be the last before the uh, forthcoming elections to the State Duma, which are of special uh, importance for the Kremlin because uh, of this political transformation which is going on. And uh, the Kremlin did try uh, four new uh, party projects. And uh, it was uh, needed to understand whether the Kremlin uh, is capable or not to find any counterplay against the smart voting invented uh, by uh, Navalny and uh, tried in several regions uh, during these elections. So there are two general components uh, of what can be called uh, the Kremlin success. Uh, first, uh, there was a kind of sterilization of elections uh, in a way which did not allow any probable competitors uh, even loyal competitors to participate in a uh, majority of races after the Kremlin got very negative experience in 2018 uh, elections. And even in case of the Communist Party, five candidates uh, out of 18 uh, gubernatorial races, they were not even uh, registered in spite of the fact that the Communist Party is the biggest of all and uh, it would be easier for them to pass uh, through the municipal filter. But even in case of registering communist candidates, the Kremlin was putting pressure in order, not, in order to avoid any strong candidates, like it happened in Irkutsk region, where uh, last December the strong communist candidate has been pushed out, uh, strong uh, communist uh, governor, <clears throat> And in spite of his desire to participate in elections, he was not allowed to do this. And the one uh, who was registered uh, as communist candidate uh, did not uh, even try to uh, compete uh, with uh, uh, the uh, one backed by uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, it's interesting that uh, in case of 18 gubernatorial races, in half of all cases, there used to be old governors, uh, those who did already serve their first term. And it happened uh, due to the fact that the Kremlin was too busy uh, with a pandemic uh, to provide for uh, replacement of at least some of them. So even those who were considered to be pretty weak uh, and uh, they've been weak, not due to the fact uh, uh, of uh, being personally weak. Weak, uh, they've been uh, weakened by the Kremlin in 2018, when all governors uh, have been pushed uh, to support wholeheartedly the pension reform, and it did create a pretty understandable ne negative attitude to uh, them. There was so-called Furgal's effect. Furgal, the former governor of Khabarovskrai, had been arrested two months ago. And uh, the general idea, I think, was to send a signal to uh, candidates uh, from uh, former political elite of regions not to violate those uh, rules of the game which are imposed by the Kremlin. And in my view, if in case of ordinary voters, 
Fergal uh, effect did uh, mean that citizens have been disappointed uh, and uh, their, uh, well, uh, idea that something can be changed in result of their voting uh, was uh, not that strong. But in case of regional political elites, it didn't play any serious role. And we've seen several cases when uh, former regional political elites, including, say, former Yaroslavl uh, Governor Lisitsyn and former Tambov uh, Mayor Kasenka, uh, they did participate in elections. And in case of Kasenka, they got uh, electoral victory. What is important is the fact that uh, not only there were gubernatorial races where the Kremlin did manage to uh, get uh, all uh, its appointees elected. Uh, there were elections to regional assemblies, and in some cases it's too early to make any final conclusions. But generally speaking, the electoral support of the United Russia uh, is now lower than it used to be in previous elections, which did not uh, come as a surprise. Uh, and uh, there were also municipal elections. And this is most interesting part of the story because there were elections to uh, 12 city councils of regional capitals, including in Novosibirsk, including in Nizhny Novgorod, in big cities where it's much more complicated for authorities to, uh, well, falsify results. And in three cases out of them, in Novosibirsk, in Tomsk, and in Tambov, it's possible to speak about defeat of uh, the Kremlin-backed candidates. In Novosibirsk, there are two parties of powers. Not only there is the United Russia, which dominates at the regional level, but there is the Communist Party, which uh, controls mayoral office in Novosibirsk. So they concluded a deal. And uh, that's why Navalny and his supporters were fighting against both the United Russia and the Communist Party. And they've been pretty much successful in their model of uh, smart voting. So uh, the general uh, conclusion uh, if to overlook all these victories and failures uh, could be uh, that in case there was a real local activism, and unfortunately uh, it wasn't very uh, typical situation this time. So in case there were real serious politicians who were eager to invest efforts, who were eager to invest money into campaigns, it was possible to fight, it was possible to win against uh, the Kremlin, against the uh, party of power. But in case uh, there was uh, uh, pessimism and uh, uh, not only systemic party, but uh, any other opposition parties did not, uh, well, compete uh, uh, intensively in elections, uh, the Kremlin did manage to win. I would uh, attract your attention to the fact that in a uh, case of gubernatorial elections, uh, in many cases, a result was similar to Lukashenko's result in August, meaning that they've reported about 80% uh, or something in between 70 and 80%. So it was huge. It didn't cause any uh, scandals, any mass protests, but it's understandable that this result 
has been achieved uh, due to the fact that there were two days of absolutely uncontrolled voting when it was possible. And in some regions, they got 60% uh, of uh, votes uh, during not the voting day, but during these uh, two pre-voting uh, days. Uh, what is important, I think, is also the fact that turnout was uh, pretty low. So, and this is another uh, component of uh, the victory for the Kremlin. Uh, if turnout is low, then the share of those uh, controlled by administration is higher, and it's much easier to get uh, good uh, numbers in favor of Kremlin-backed uh, candidates. Uh, and uh, my last point is connected uh, with uh, new political parties which did appear uh, in these elections. There were four parties tried by the Kremlin. It's, uh, uh, three of them did manage to win at least some seats in one of regions. And uh, if you do have uh, one regional deputy, then you do not need to gather signatures at the time of elections to the state Duma. So it was very important for them to get these victories. And uh, those regions which were given uh, uh, to them uh, uh, did, uh, well, assist uh, them, uh, except for two regions. There was Voronezh and Belgorod, where uh, regional authorities did not help those parties backed uh, by the Kremlin. And perhaps uh, the recent uh, yesterday's resignation of uh, the long liver uh, Belgorod governor Evgeny Savchenko, who was the last one appointed not by Putin but by Yeltsin in 1993, uh, can be uh, somehow connected to the fact that he himself and his administration didn't uh, assist the Kremlin to uh, give. Uh, seats needed to Kremlin-backed parties. So we do have now the party for the truth uh, of uh, the right uh, Zakhar Prilepin. We do have uh, the party uh, New Man, Novoi Ludi, uh, backed and financed uh, by the businessman Andrei Nichaev. And we do have a uh, party, the Green Alternative, uh, it uh, is considered to be, uh, well, uh, fighting for ecological issues, and it's backed by a uh, well-known uh, painter, Vasya Loshkin. So uh, uh, all of them did manage to get 5 to 10% of votes in uh, a few regional races, meaning that they can be used uh, in a year from now, at the time of state Duma elections, in order to... Uh, well, uh, help uh, the Kremlin to get finally uh, majority the Kremlin needs at the State Duma. However, the problem is connected with the fact that half of mandates should be distributed in single mandate districts, and uh, the technology of smart voting uh, did demonstrate that in big cities uh, it's uh, quite possible for the opposition, even uh, well, uh, in case uh, federal leaders of opposition parties do wholeheartedly support the Kremlin, it's possible to make deals uh, with uh, regional activists, and it's possible to find that it's possible to win against Kremlin-backed candidates. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, uh, Kolya. I want to go next to Regina Smythe, who's actually with us now at the Kennan Institute as a fellow, um, but is normally a professor of political science at Indiana University. Her primary research interest is the dynamics of state society relations in transitional and electoral authoritarian regimes. Uh, she's written extensively on post-Soviet political development in the Russian Federation, focusing precisely on elections, parties, uh, civic initiatives, and the effects of social policy. In her new book, Elections, Protest, and Authoritarian Regime Stability, Russia 2008 to 2020, should be coming out uh, in just a couple of months this year. So Regina, please. Thanks, Matt. So I want to um, echo a lot of what Kolya said, but amplify some key points. And I want to start by saying it's hard for me to think of this as an election while there were pockets of competition and pockets of uh, real give and take. Really, this is a performance of state competence in one critical area. So we often think of the Russian state as struggling, but here in management of elections, it's really got the system down to a science. So what do we learn from the regime, about the regime from the exercise? It's that its capacity to manufacture votes is very strong. It has an astounding ability to adapt to the conditions across districts and regions and to adjust uh, their strategy across those geographic areas. We also see that in large part, there's not significant elite defection within the system needed to make the electoral management work. So there are a few examples of independence. Nikolai uh, pointed out some of them. We do see elite defection in support of opposition candidates or against very disliked United Russia candidates, but by, by and large within the system of electoral management, people are doing their jobs. And it takes a lot of people to fix a contest in this way. But I wanna join Nikolai in saying this doesn't necessarily represent the strength of United Russia or its candidates. The numbers aren't about political support, they're about this management system. So the use of elections as a legitimizing force or to win support for responsiveness is growing considerably weaker so that the system, the entire system is starting to change because of this change in electoral systems. Um, we can talk about uh, specific cases as we go on, but I wanna also note that the burden of manufacturing these votes is getting more difficult and the Kremlin's working harder to secure the same outcomes. Society is looking more and more like a normal electorate, disengaging when things are hopeless or there's no choice, but attentive and ready to engage when there's competition happening. One sign of this uh, work that the Kremlin's doing, but also a sign of weakness in the system, is that we're seeing a big return to Yeltsin era strategies to limit opposition majorities. So for example, in the by-elections for the State Duma, we see that a bunch of these guys, or there were only four races, but three of the four were not held because someone died, but because the Kremlin pulled unpopular candidates into state bureaucracies, and in place of them nominated celebrities like hockey players and cosmonauts or people with really close ties to local industry that can turn out the vote. So this is, this is a hearkening back. 
we see lots of parties on the party list side of the race. So that small parties that don't make it over the threshold create a large seat bonus for United Russia. So if we look at a very conservative region, Kostroma, there are 11 parties on the ballot with several more that tried to get on but were disqualified, including the fourth Kremlin project party run by Putin's nephew. So the percent of votes on the party list race was 31% of the vote for uh, United Russia, but it got 50% of the seats because the small parties didn't get over the, the, the hurdle, the, the threshold, and the seat bonus went to the largest party. This made a real difference for the UR control of the regional legislature, the Obduma, which is really quite small. <coughs> the last thing they're doing is playing the name game. So it, there were uh, several versions of communist parties uh, on the ballot, including the KPSS, the Communist Party of Social Justice, and the Communists of Russia. So these Kremlin parties still struggled for support in the lead up to 2021. Uh, Nikolai noted that they did uh, surpass uh, the threshold to be able to be on the ballot for parliamentary elections, but not in any sort of um, authentic way. So we see that most of the votes for these parties came in this stump voting system where elections were unobserved. So that perhaps uh, voters are on to this strategy. So I just wanted to highlight a couple more of the um, ways in which the Kremlin is uh, managing elections. So Nikolai mentioned turnout. Here the Kremlin has had to tolerate lower and lower turnout in these elections. And also what we see is varying levels of turnout across races in the same district. So gubernatorial turnout was lower than the last round, but higher than uh, legislative turnout. So we see with this in the same region with the same people, different levels of turnout. We see big gaps in who voted uh, in the mobile sites and who voted in the districts. So you have very, very high percentages of voting in the mobile sites uh, relative to the districts in races where there has been trouble in our condos, for example. The level of voting uh, in, the, in the gubernatorial race uh, through mobile sites was extremely high relative to districts. Uh, this point has been made about urban voting. We also see that uh, the, the difference in turnout changes depending on monitoring. And in places where there's close monitoring of the elections, we see uh, closer margins and also uh, slightly higher turnout. <coughs> which suggests that manipulation is being um, uh, worked through turnout. I wanna make a really strong point here that the Kremlin has total control over who runs on these ballots. And it's using this control to manufacture ballots that will produce the outcome it wants. And it's gotten this down to a science and what we saw in this race as a sign of weakness was the optimal control has been five candidates on the ballot, perhaps six. But in many of these races, you're seeing 
10 candidates on the ballot in order to split the opposition vote and have the United Russia candidate come out ahead. In Odianos, for example, where there was a strong movement, all of the KPRF candidates were not permitted to run. We see a big gap between what's happening in party list race and district races. So again, in Kostroma, United Russia gets 30% of the votes um, and 16 out of 25 of the seats in single member districts. This shows how ballot manipulation really provides the capacity to uh, shape outcomes even in the face of smart voting. So this control over ballot access is really important. Um, let me just conclude here so we can get to discussion with two ideas. First, it's that the Kremlin does seem aware of danger of creating common knowledge. That is the danger of creating the situation that we observed in Belarus, where a, a factory worker says, everyone in our shop voted for Tishkanovskaya. How could it be that Lukashenko got 80% of the vote? So we see a very careful management of vote uh, vote totals across districts where you might have expected an opposition candidate to be successful. Uh, they come very close to the United Russia candidate. And then in, in districts where, or precincts where you would expect the vote to be, to go to United Russia, the numbers are astronomically high, sometimes over 85 and 90% in those precincts, in the gubernatorial races and in the Oblastuma races. Finally, I want to point out that it's essential to look at what's changing in terms of coalition formation and governments in legislatures after the races. So we would start to expect to expect to see some divisions in Yedro between independent and party deputies, between district and list deputies, and a growing sign of uh, tension or perhaps even strength for the systemic parties, which are now being uh, manhandled in a much more aggressive way than they have been. I also want to point out that the smart voting candidates and the candidates who are voting on these small, uh, winning on these small parties, many of them are talking to each other. And so in Moscow, we see, for example, smart vote candidates who were supported by Navalny in the election campaign, still in touch with the Navalny organization, getting help from them in terms of legislative writing. So we see here a change that could go beyond just uh, how this election turned out to create new challenges in governance. Great, thank you so much, uh, Regina. I wanna uh, go to Max, but before I do, let me remind you, uh, if you have questions, you can email them to kenan at wilsoncenter.org, uh, tweet at Kenan Institute, or post on our Facebook page, uh, and please include your name and affiliation. Uh, so now I'll go to Max Trudelubov, who's our senior advisor at the Kenan Institute, editor-at-large of Medusa, uh, and previously the editorial page editor of Vietnamosti from 2003 to 2015. He's been a contributing opinion writer the International New York Times since the fall of 2013. Uh, he writes the Russia File blog here at the Kennan Institute uh, and has worked to further open and inform political debate in Russia over the past nearly two decades in various roles. Max, please, the floor is yours. 
Uh, thank you, Matt. Um, and thank you for having me. And uh, really good to see you, uh, everyone, uh, uh, online, unfortunately. But, um, and uh, thank you for the great uh, presentations. Um, I uh, think that I cannot stress strongly enough this point that Regina uh, made uh, that uh, the uh, the events that we are discussing, they're called elections, uh, just like any elections in any part of the world. But this is a different thing. This is a very special uh, administ administrative procedure whose purpose uh, is different from uh, the elections that happen uh, in the States, in uh, Germany, in France, Argentina, Japan, any other country where uh, access to um, being elected is uh, more open, let's say. Uh, the idea essentially, uh, uh, the Kremlin's idea is that uh, it's important to manage the process of uh, who gets to, uh, the, to the ballot, who gets registered as a candidate, who can um, who can access uh, politics, even symbolically, despite the fact that most of the um, elected uh, officials, uh, they have really limited roles. We also have to understand that. Um, the municipal deputies, very limited roles. Even the deputies uh, in the Duma, the Russian parliament, uh, they um, they have a very limited scope of, for uh, you know decision making uh, and governors probably uh, the most politically active and potent figures in Russia. Uh, but again, access to being elected, uh, selected, I would say, as a governor, is highly, highly, very closely managed uh, by the presidential administration. Uh, by the people who have never been elected. Uh, so the uh, process of being elected is managed by people who uh, have never been elected in the first place. Um, and um, one, the second thing that I want to point out, I think, is, is that um, uh, since time I've been watching this, um, uh, there were two competing views of, uh, of how Russia's political uh, process, or where the Russian political process is going, which way. Um, is it uh, gradually uh, moving towards uh, becoming um, more liberal in the sense that, again, the access is more open, more people can get elected, um, younger, mm, uh, people with more genuine popularity, grassroots uh, support, um, or it is moving in the direction of more managed, uh, technical, uh, essentially campaign management uh, techniques um, where everything is under control. So I think this election is in a way peaked in, 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 uh, as, as probably the most managed uh, that I have seen uh, so far. Uh, the, the Kremlin has been incredibly successful, I think, in, in achieving uh, almost everything they wanted uh, at this election. They, 
Um, they kept the turnout low. Uh, they got all the governors they wanted elected. Um, and the governors are the most important figures. And um, uh, uh, the governors are uh, popular figures. They do have uh, a connection to the population, to the citizens. Uh, people very often in many regions uh, identify with their region and kind of uh, they know the name of their governor, they know they, 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 they interact with uh, the local uh, politics and local uh, events. Uh, so the governors are uh, super important and uh, the Kremlin has been able to get um, all all the governors they wanted uh, sort of confirmed, I wouldn't say elected, but essentially uh, uh, acclimated as, uh, as uh, new uh, uh, governors, I, I, again. Um, and um, I think that the process uh, has been, uh, for the past years, essentially that um, politics uh, has been driven out of the uh, uh, procedures, out of the institutional uh, procedures. Uh, the elections uh, essentially are devoid of politics. Politics happens somewhere else. Uh, the Kremlin, for, for the Kremlin, it's absolutely important that politics does not happen in the streets. Demonstrations, rallies uh, are a problem. Uh, it always, from the Kremlin's point of view, it means that something's wrong and uh, uh, somebody else is controlling the political process, not the Kremlin. Uh, so essentially what we are seeing is that the uh, political management in Moscow uh, has, uh, is becoming more convinced, uh, sure of themselves as uh, electoral management, uh, as electoral managers, as political managers, they achieve more and they're completely sure that this is how politics happens. This is how it should be done. Uh, everything should be predetermined. Uh, the figures selected through uh, some OPEC, completely uh, in transparent uh, process, go through uh, this public procedure and get essentially appointed or acclimated, if we use this uh, word from the essentially medieval uh, ways of, uh, you know, uh, Republican, uh, all the Republican practices of, you know, when people were shouting the name of, uh, essentially goes back to the ancient, to, uh, to uh, ancient uh, democracies. Uh, so we, we see that this is a essentially a success. Uh, the question, uh, the success for the Kremlin, the question remains uh, where and at what point real politics will jump out of the box. Um, what I've been seeing for the past years is that uh, essentially the, uh, political managers have been pushing the lid on the on the cooker, on the on this, you know, powder keg that is politics, closer, tighter, and tighter, and, and they've been successful at that. The question is when it comes out. 
uh, and um, it has not so far. Uh, apparently, there are no triggers or people are not interested. And I will, um, for example, I can quote um, one of the takeaways from the book that um, uh, a colleague of ours, uh, Sam Green, uh, just recently published, I think last year, uh, Putin versus the people. They've um, uh, analyzed uh, and uh, they made um, uh, in-depth conversations with um, people in Russia uh, who were active politically. One of the takeaways uh, takeaways is that um, people in Russia divide not in the sense that some think that everything is great and they vote for Putin and others think that everything is bad and they vote against Putin or uh, Kremlin-appointed candidates. Uh, the divide is between the people uh, who think that everything's not particularly good uh, and they believe in politics and they think that things can be changed through a political process. And those who think that things also are not good, they just don't believe in politics. Um, uh, I don't, they don't see how any political process can change that. And the latter, those who don't believe in politics, they're just a majority. There are more of them than, uh, than those who are naive enough to join uh, real political movements like Alexei Navalny's movement uh, and uh, then face uh, a disillusionment uh, after uh, you know, a number of attempts and realize that no, things cannot be changed. So uh, this is kind of, kind of existential, I think, that, um, uh, that uh, uh, the Kremlin strengthens and entrenches in its belief that politics only exists as a managed process, uh, meticulously controlled from a to Z, that everything should be uh, managed, uh, everyone should be selected, and then uh, open to the public, you know, as a, as a sort of a theatrical performance of these elections. And then, and then there is this minority uh, of Russians who still, for all kinds of reasons, think that a uh, political process is something else. And um, um, I think that this year we've unfortunately moved closer to the Kremlin's understanding of politics, a little bit farther away from uh, more grassroots, chaotic and uh, 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 sort of democratic understanding of, of, of politics that um, probably still uh, exists in in somebody's uh, you know understanding of uh, of how things have changed in in, in a country, but um, uh, I will just conclude by saying that um, probably we just are uh, uh, we we have to be honest and uh, uh, with ourselves and uh, understand that that's where we are. Uh, this. This year has not brought a change in, in the kind of direction that people like myself, for example, has been hoping uh, for. 
and uh, we just have to analyze and then uh, analyze the results and uh, and see if um, um, if uh, there are any uh, signs of the things trending in um, the other direction. I quite frankly see very few of them. And just to be on it, end it on a happy note, I would just say that yes, of course, the results in Novosibirsk and uh, Tomsk and Tambov are great. And this means that um, in Siberia, Novosibirsk and Tomsk, in Siberia, people are able to uh, act, uh, especially in Novosibirsk, uh, create coalitions, act in concert with each other, uh, create collective movements, which is incredible, which is something that is, I think, for foreign audience, for uh, everyone uh, outside of Russia, uh, I cannot uh, stress it strongly enough. It's very, very difficult to uh, act collectively in a place like Russia, in a place like Iran, in a place like China, where um, any collective action is punishable. So whatever happens, it under more uh, under uh, in a different environment that would be ten times probably hundred times more. So the things that happened in Novosibirsk and Tomsk mean that the Russian public, the Russian society is actually able to um, to think politically in that non-Kremlin way. It's just a sign of things to come. Let's hope for that. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you, Max, and, and to all three of you. Again, a reminder, uh, email uh, Kenan at wilsoncenter.org, tweet to Kenan Institute, or post on Facebook for questions. Let me start, though, with this question uh, and ask you guys to, to get outside the box of the present a little bit. Um, when we, it seems to me when we, when we um, analyze or when we, uh, you know, uh, debrief or handicap the success or failure of uh, any election in Russia, our basis of comparison implicitly is Western democratic elections or is some kind of abstract future notion of elections in a democratic Russia. After all, uh, if you go the other direction on the sliding scale towards uh, less democracy, then you don't even have to have elections. In other words, the point of comparison of an election is lost. So what I'd like to invite you to do is speculate or, or perhaps uh, recount for us an actual real case in the history of this country. Maybe it was in late Soviet times, perestroika. Uh, maybe it was the Zemstvos of the late 19th century. Maybe it was the 1990s, when you saw something like uh, a flourishing of democracy on a local level expressed through elections. Explain to us what that might look like as a basis of comparison to the extent that that's real. That's, that's actual Russians engaging in actual electoral democracy on a local level. I think that would be very helpful to me uh, and, and probably also to, to others who are trying to understand, you know, uh, against what are we comparing these, these recent Putin local elections. Does anybody want to try to tackle that or is it an unfair question? <laughs> uh... Nikolai? Ahead, well, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try. I, I don't have a very good answer, Matt. Um, well, there is this basic fact about Russia that power has never changed hands in an election. 
in Russia. It just never happened. Uh, so this political decisions are made um, uh, outside of the public view and then presented to the public. And uh, television is probably the best symbol and kind of can do it for the kind of politics that, uh, well, the way the Kremlin understands politics. They, they understand it this way long before television uh, appeared, but um, they, it's one way, it's, it's this communication. Something happens behind the screen, then uh, there is a, an anchor who appears on, on your screen and just you know, lets you know uh, how things should be. And uh, uh, in fact, um, we, we know very little about those people who are Russian politicians, including Vladimir Putin. Uh, well, he, he, to a certain extent, yes, he is a popular figure, but uh, I, I don't have an, really an, an answer. Has he ever been elected, really? But uh, everyone else certainly has never been elected. So these people uh, could have been actors. They just could be, you know, it, it, it could be a sitcom, uh, uh, a show. Uh, they just come on screen and, 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 and screen and tell you, uh, you know. Uh, so in that sense, it's, it's kind of pretty pessimistic. Um, but um, on the other hand, uh, there are lots of signs that um, the Russian public is quite um, able to uh, to um, uh, to get together to think about uh, their life, their common interests. Whenever they can, it happens. Whenever there is an event or uh, or a, a cause that gets people get gets people's attention focused uh this happens immediately just like this it's um, landfills for example um ecological problems are one of those uh, this happens in 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 multiple regions uh people immediately get together there are local leaders uh emerging um uh, and then the Political, man political management from Moscow st starts to deal with this and they very often are able to dissolve it, to, to, to wait it out, to, to, um, to make sure uh, no significant consequences follow. But um, we have seen uh, a lot of cases where people have been able to change, um, uh, to, to, um, to make a difference in Ekaterinburg, in Arkhangelsk, with the landfill in Ekaterinburg, with the uh, cathedral uh, that was supposed to be built uh, on, uh, on a piece of land that people wanted to keep as a park. Uh, and there are numerous, numerous other occasions of grassroots movements uh, emerging and achieving results. Very often not through an election, simply because an election from the Kremlin's point, it's like Essentially, it's what they do. They do the they manage the election. That's their business, and they're good at it. So they uh, normally prevent um, uh, everyone from changing things, from making a difference through an electoral mechanism.
but people are able to do it through other uh, mechanisms. And, and to me, this, this is a sign and it, it, it's something that um, uh, I think means that uh, the Russian public is just like any other public in, in any other country in the world is able and willing to um, change, uh, effect change through uh, collective action. So, uh, Max, your answer seems to suggest that uh, the, the pageant of an election really is just that, that it's sort of beside the point. Um, I would push yeah. back, and, and Regina, I see you on mute, so I'm going to come to you next, but I would push back and, and suggest that um, it, it, it's been almost universal in uh, societies in transition that when um, the opportunity arises to organize locally, uh, that that organizing often takes the form of something that looks like an election. It might not be a sort of perfect political science definition of it, but essentially it's taking the pulse of the majority of the people and, and, and an election is a very efficient way to do that. Um, but it's interesting you say when Russians solve problems through grassroots action, just like from the top down, it happens outside the context of an election. Yes. Uh, Regina, please go ahead. So um, to go to your historical analogy, um, I, I was really lucky to be in St. Petersburg a lot in the late uh, 1980s where you saw very much uh, a sort of, not some collective action, but coordination that people wanted something different and there were very smart uh, uh, opposition politicians who were giving them choices, even in the elections. And I would also go to, I had a, I spent a lot of time in the regions in the 1990s, and there were, there were lots of politics going on in the regions in the 1990s. Candidates were really good politicians. They were reaching out to define their electorates. There were lots of controls. There was no by no means a clean or fair race, but there was an awful lot of politics happening out um, in the regions and even in the urban regions with gubernatorial machines, which is its own sort of politics. So, so I think even in the very recent past, we don't have to go back to 1905 or even 1916 to see sort of um, contestation and a really intelligent, smart, creative response to opportunities. Uh, Koya, do you want to get in on, on this one? Go ahead. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, I would say that uh, Marx is absolutely right when saying that never in contemporary Russian history the uh, fate of the country has been decided in elections. Uh, but we should look at at least three different levels uh, when speaking about elections. In case of the national, the federal level, uh, the first and the last more or less uh, free and fair election took place in 1991. It was the presidential elections. And the reason why is that that time position of the president of Russia was nothing. So it wasn't about real power. Uh, Yeltsin did manage to win that time. Uh, but at the regional level, I would say that in course of 90s, 
elections uh, looked uh, very uh, competitive and uh, uh, very interesting. And in many cases, uh, the Kremlin uh, and the Kremlin-backed candidates were losing. What was going on before uh, Putin has switched first to uh, appointment of governors and then to elections with municipal filter? It was a kind of negative selection. Unlike now, the Kremlin was pushing out of the race those candidates uh, who would be dangerous for the Kremlin, uh, leaving those who are acceptable. And there was, there could be very intensive competition between those guys. And whoever uh, was winning, uh, he could conclude, uh, uh, well, a deal uh, with the Kremlin. What we see now, I think, it's uh, absence of any real competition in uh, gubernatorial elections at the federal level. And to illustrate this fact, I would say that out of almost 150 gubernatorial races since uh, the system announced uh, the switch to direct gubernatorial elections in 2012, there were only four cases when the challenger uh, did win against uh, incumbent governor appointed by uh, the Kremlin. In two of these cases, when uh, really strong challengers did manage to win, uh, they are not in place. It's Irkutsk and Khabarovsk. And only those two governors who appeared to be pretty weak are still able to sit in their offices. But what we see at the municipal level uh, can be quite different. Not only this is Moscow municipal elections in uh, 20. Uh, 17, in 2018, uh, but even now we've seen uh, pretty uh, interesting races at the municipal level because municipal elections is about nothing and the Kremlin uh, does not uh, pay uh, any serious attention to what's going on. But my last point is that the system, uh, the political regime in Russia is uh, very different from what it used to be. And uh, this, uh, well, transformation uh, happened uh, in 2014, and especially after annexation of Crimea. And one of uh, the very important features of the current regime is that legitimacy is not coming from the bottom up. It's distributed from the top down. So the system, the regime is legitimate due to high Putin's popularity and his legitimacy is transferred to governors, uh, through governors to uh, regional and municipal deputies and uh, elsewhere. That's why the Kremlin now not only is not interested in competitive elections, uh, competitive elections are dangerous for the Kremlin because they can create legitimate leaders, being them governors or even regional deputies, who are legitimate due to popular support, not due to the fact that it's Putin, it's the Kremlin who did back then. That's why last more or less competitive elections at regional level, uh, if not to speak about these four cases, when uh, we've seen a kind of protest voting, it wasn't real uh, political competition. The last case of real Political competition was 2013 in Moscow mayoral elections when Navalny, Alexei Navalny, came the second with 27% of votes. 
And that, that time it was real campaign. It was uh, evident, it was uh, very intensive. Uh, crowds were engaged into this campaign. There were a lot of uh, places in Moscow where, uh, well, agitation was going on. So it was really a very interesting political game in town, the last one. So uh, I want to take up this point of uh, legitimacy and also uh, Navalny and his and his strategy as essentially the uh, the symbol or the figurehead leader of of the only genuine non-systemic opposition in Russia. Um, but there's an element that troubles me a little bit, and I wonder. Uh, we'll, we'll make this the last question and invite each of you to to comment on this and and wrap up. Um, I see a trend towards the blurring of substantive, you could say ideological lines among all of the opposition to United Russia, uh, which includes at one end of the spectrum, you know, parties like uh, Rodina, uh, the Communist Party, uh, you know, LDPR, very conservative nationalist parties. Some have even said Navalny has this kind of strain to him. Uh, but then at the other end of the spectrum also, you know, kind of liberal, liberal crit critics of the regime, liberal opposition. And I wonder uh, if one of the effects of the protest voting or the smart voting uh, hasn't been to give a kind of legitimacy uh, to what you would hope uh, in their extreme nationalism and intolerance would be somewhat fringe views uh, in, in any nation's politics, that in essence, if if there is ever going to be a moment for a free election, whether it's local or national, that the, the natural candidate or party to rise to the top is, is now going to be more conservative and more nationalist than it would have otherwise been. Um, do you see that as a problem? And also, how do you see the long-term impact of the, the kind of narrower and narrower space within which political opposition has to operate? Uh, I would say that uh, there is very intensive discussion going on in the liberal camp with regard to smart voting. So Navalny's approach is to find uh, a candidate uh, who is capable to win against the candidate of, say, the United Russia, being he in communist, being he nationalist, or anybody else. This is very political approach about consolidating forces against the major enemy. The other camp is saying that we should practice moral, uh, well, approach, and we should not combine our efforts with those who are bad guys, with nationalists, with communists. We should combine our forces uh, with only those uh, who are sharing our liberal, our democratic views. And unfortunately, although uh, I do have sympathy uh, with regard to this uh, second camp and uh, it's widespread in Yadlaka, for example, uh, I would say that it brings them uh, to the margin. It brings them to the electoral ghetto. And the only way uh, to go out is to fight against the major enemy and then to think about all differences in our uh, well, political views in our positions and so on. This is exactly what Alexei Navalny is doing, and this is exactly what he is blamed, blamed for. 
But I would say that uh, we should not be that pessimistic with regard to, say, forthcoming Duma elections, because now I think the role of regional political elites, not necessarily of those governors who are sent by the Kremlin from Moscow to manage regions, but of proper regional elites, including business elites, will be bigger than uh, even in previous elections. So we should wait that the natural result of weakening of the very archaic, very old-fashioned, very ineffective party system uh, and switch by the Kremlin to single mandate races will lead uh, to more pluralism, will lead to bigger representation of regional interests. And in that way, it will make Russian politics uh, more sophisticated than it looks now. I don't know, Nikolai, that, that sounds like a, a long and winding road to optimism. Uh, I, I hope there, there's a real roadmap. Uh, Regina, how about I, I come to you on, on this and, and also more broadly, I mean, you, you study uh, the ways that elections uh, evolve and people's attitudes towards them evolve in authoritarian systems. Um, do you see a path forward whereby uh, there's actually space for what we would consider to be a normal spectrum of political views in competitive politics, or has Russia, as was so often the case in Russia's history, uh, has the dominance of one view kind of laid, set the table for the long term of Russia's future? Um, yeah, I'm a political scientist. You just broke my head. Um, Navalny, let me, let me say here that, um, first of all, Navalny's picking people. He's not picking parties, and he's very carefully picking those people. And so he's not quite covering the spectrum in smart vote that, that you um, uh, suggest. The second thing I want to say is there is signs, at least in Moscow and St. Petersburg, that smart vote candidates, even from the Communist Party or other parties, uh, continue to be in dialogue. So there's a process of dialogue and change that happens. That's a very small scale, but it's a very smart scale. Um, I don't think smart voting is uh, entirely out there to um, to demonstrate or or to to just have anybody but United Russia, it's to show people that if they engage and coordinate, they can make a change, a small change. It's a, it's a preparation just as the regime is preparing for 2021, so is the opposition. And so here we're saying, okay, if we have some big wins, they become really important uh, signals that change is possible. And I think this is more an information campaign than an electoral component of the campaign. That's what I think the strategy is about. Um, I want to I reiterate that I don't think that this election tells us anything about Russian people's opinions, that it's too controlled. It was far too controlled, sterilized. We're all, we're all searching for language. We need new language about how to describe this, what happened. But I don't think it tells us anything about people. But I do know that, that Russians are conservative in the sense that they don't want big change. And so it seems unlikely that they'll push to the extremes if given the choice. They'll elect people that are familiar to them. They'll elect people that have local reputations. They'll elect successful businessmen. So I'm, I'm not as concerned about that pushing to the edge uh, as, as you seem to be. 
Great, thank you. Uh, Max, I, I'm gonna give you the last word if you wanna uh, comment on this or anything else. Um, but uh, I, I also wanna pick up uh, with this final question on what Regina said about just you know how, how unimportant or not, not telling this is except as a kind of communications exercise and, and signaling with respect to the 2021 Duma elections and ask you, what should those of us who watch Russian domestic politics be watching in the year or so between now and that election? Uh, you're muted, Max. Um, yeah, thank you for the question. So um, uh, what uh, Alexei Navalny has started uh, is what they call smart voting. It's, it's actually an international phenomenon. It's called tactical voting. Um, it happens everywhere. It happens in the United States as well, by the way, when people uh, realize that uh, it's important to vote for either of the two, not for the third candidate, because if you vote for the third candidate, wherever that might be, you essentially are wasting your vote. So uh, this is very technical. And um, uh, Navalny's message here is that uh, there are no ideology. There's no ideology in Russia. Ideology uh, or real politics is not involved in the election. The Kremlin has completely, uh, uh, it's devoid of politics. So the only thing that we can do, Navalny says, is to play just like they do, being uh, uh, technical. Uh, they manage the election, we break that management, we break that mechanism. And the only way they found is to try and coordinate the vote so that people vote for whoever there is, uh, who is the least of the evils, because there are no real candidates. And they say it, uh, Leonid Volkov, who's uh, Alexei Navalny's uh, campaign manager, and, and he's running the organization actually. Uh, he's saying this, that, you know, you have to think it, about it differently. There are no ideologies, there are no politics here. It's all about who is the least uh, uh, terrible of, of all those, of all those no names who are on the ballot, you know, just let's coordinate and vote for this uh, X, Y, or Z, uh, simply because uh, that will break the system. Uh, and uh, this potentially is very effective and probably we will see more of it. Uh, but of course, it's completely devoid of um, meaning, uh, of uh, political substance. Uh, and uh, it's, um, it's taking politics away from, uh, from uh, thinking in terms of um, values. It, it's kind of post-value thing, and, uh, and uh, I don't know what to do with this. I'm not sure that this is, uh, uh, this is how you continue. So this is a way to break down the system, but it's not a way to build a new one, because um, I don't think this will ever change, but people do uh, live and think and believe in certain values. And, uh, and uh, so, this will take over at some point, this will happen. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Uh, and we are living through a process, through a time in Russia's history where we have this 
political process that it's completely sterile, completely devoid of uh, any uh, substance and on purpose. Uh, that's what they've been doing for years. They've been trying to drench it of any uh, any meaning, any connection to any values, anything. And that's been done from the Kremlin uh, top down. And now we have a movement in Russia, the only real political opposition that we have, Alexei Navalny's organization, who are hitting against that with essentially uh, also this this kind of tool, uh, very technical, uh, aiming at breaking the machine rather than winning uh, a political game because the, well, in under, under the circumstances, this is not possible. So, um, so basically to, to conclude, I think that uh, we are like in a way in a very dark place uh, in the sense that uh, politics is devoid of substance, uh, devoid of values, but they do exist. They live in other places. Uh, um, the Kremlin has been able to clean, sterilize, sanitize uh, the, uh, the electoral process. But uh, there are lots of other places where it does exist. There's, there are media, there are um, causes that people care about. Uh, there are figures, there are popular leaders uh, that tend to attract attention. So things happen. And, and um, my understanding is that um, change will come from those other, uh, other places, uh, not from where the Kremlin is super prepared and, you know, it's like winning a game in, you know, you can win, you cannot win, uh, you cannot compete with the government, with a state in, in using violence and using force. The state is always stronger. Uh, and that's the same in Russia, it's the same in elections. In elections, the Kremlin is always stronger. But there are other ways, and this is where uh, life uh, goes on and uh, people are changing and uh, generational change, by the way, is happening. Um, uh, people now are active who were born in the 80s, and it's a big generation in Russia, the biggest one, bigger than uh, those who were born like myself in the 70s. Uh, and uh, they will take over eventually. Well, thanks very much, Max. That That's also a, a note of optimism, but certainly a long-term one. Um, I want to thank all three of you. I'm reminded uh, by uh, the, the notion that politics values, uh, ideas, uh, all exist outside the framework of elections, which is certainly true, uh, to call your attention to a recent Ken and X podcast, uh, which is a discussion between uh, our own Jill Doherty and Ksenia Sobchak, the former presidential candidate, uh, celebrity, and many other things about the idea of political correctness in uh, Russian public life. And certainly that's uh, not a debate that happens uh, from the podium of, uh, of campaigning, but it apparently is happening now in Russian television and other places. So uh, a good example, maybe not the most weighty one. Uh, I thank all of you uh, again for your thoughts and uh, look forward to talking again in the future. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Matt.